Thanks for tuning in to MANA, a short daily meditation to feed hungry souls with God's Word. These episodes were prepared by ordained ministers for a radio broadcast called Voice of the Church and are now republished by the Reformed Perspective Foundation, a Canadian charity that applies biblical truth to the issues of our time. Here's today's serving. Good day and welcome back to Voice of the Church as we continue our January series on the return of Christ It is always a beautiful opportunity with the changing of the year to remember that time will not continue forever. One day the final trumpet will sound, Jesus Christ will return, and the time of this world will in a sense come to a close as God brings in the glories of eternity. Jesus prepares us for these. He prepares us for this change in time by speaking to us of how we can be ready for his coming, how we can be ready for when he comes again. Our study so far in the month of January has taken us through the beginning of Matthew 24 and the first parable of Matthew 25, a parable of the wise and foolish virgins who taught us that we must be wise enough to know our own weakness and wise enough to know that our weakness is fully met in the sufficiency and provision we find in Christ. We now continue with another parable of Jesus, and each parable is like another piece in a puzzle. It's like Jesus is giving us elements and sides of how to be ready with each parable. In the first parable, he told us we must be wise as we have a long wait. Be ready for what will come naturally in the weakening of our own faith. But in the second parable, it's as if Jesus is saying, Now listen, I don't want you to get too comfortable. I don't want you to think merely that the time between my first and second coming is a time when you sit and twiddle your thumbs, waiting as the oil burns, as it were. No, in this parable, he focuses us upon what it means to work and how part of what it means to be ready for the return of Christ is not only to be wise, but to work in the things that God has given us to do, to be busy for the kingdom and for the glory of God. This parable is often called the parable of the talents. And I'll read a portion to you from it now, from Matthew 25, verse 14 and following. It says there, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise he who had received two gained two more also. But he who received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with him. He who received five talents came and brought five others, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more besides them. His Lord said to them, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler of many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And we'll get to the last section of that parable in a moment, but we'll continue and begin with what we've read now. Jesus pictures the time between his first coming and second as a time when a master goes away from his empire and entrusts his servants with his own goods. Now, a talent. What is a talent? If we think of talents today, we may think of things like being able to paint or being able to sing very well. You're a talented singer. But a talent in the day of Christ was actually a unit of money. They had the shekel. They had the talent. And the talent was the largest unit of money in that time. In fact, it was so large, uh, some say that it could have been worth roughly around 20 years of an average working man's salary. To put that into contemporary terms, one talent might have been around $1 million today, roughly. So I want you to think of what's happening here. Jesus is picturing the time between his first and second coming 
as a time like when a very rich man leaves his estate in the hands of his servants and he gives them vast, vast amounts of money. Five million to one, two million to another, and one million to a third. Now, if you're perhaps a little like me, you might be thinking, I wouldn't mind receiving five million or two million dollars to take care of. But I'd like you to think a little more of what it would mean to take care of that much money that belonged to someone else. Wouldn't that make you just a little bit nervous? What happens if you actually lost it? What happens if you made a bad investment? What happens if you meant well and tried something to make your master money, but you just did it wrong and he came back and you said, Master, I'm so sorry you gave me five million dollars and I have nothing to pay you back. I would not want to be that kind of person. This story is a story of teaching us what it means to receive gifts from God and what it means to find God putting his blessing on those gifts. And there's hope for you and there's hope for me. Because the way the parable is told, we need to realize something very important. Everyone who used his money for the good of the master, used his investment, what God gave him for the glory of the Lord, everyone who did that succeeded. They never failed. I'm not a very good investor, but I'll take that one. Because if I put my effort forth for the glory of God with what he's given me, this parable shows me that that effort, though it may not seem like it all the time, will ultimately bring fruit. And bring fruit that God will rejoice in. Well, let's begin to get into this parable a little more as we study this. First and foremost, what are the talents? What does it mean that God gives talents? I think today we can see these and should see these things in many ways. Whatever this talent was in that time was a unit of money. Something belonging to the master that he gave as a trust to his servants. If we think of what belongs to God and is given to us as a trust, we can think of very many things that might fit that category. We can think of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We can think of the opportunity to hear the gospel which you're hearing even as we speak right now and listen on the radio. We can think of friendships. We can think of families, things that belong to God and God has given to us. If we've been blessed with a spouse, something that belongs to God and God entrusts to us, a child, a job, a bank account. Everything we have in life belongs to God and is to be used for God's glory. That's what this parable is teaching us. And one of the things it's telling us is that the time in which we wait for Christ is to be a time where we use all those gifts God has given us and we use them for the Master's good. We use them for the glory of God. We use our jobs to honor Him, our health to honor Him, our friendships to honor Him, our families to honor Him. These things God has given us. And we want to use them back for God. It's a very beautiful and important principle. Because in this we see how all of life is the Lord's. I don't know if you've ever grown up or been taught or heard of the practice of tithing. It's the idea that when we get a paycheck, we give a portion to God and we teach our children to do this from a very young age. If they make $10 for shoveling a neighbor's sidewalk, they put one in the offering plate for the Lord, a one they get to use for spending, and we try and encourage them to save eight. It doesn't always work. But we teach our children to tithe, to recognize of the money they make, they give a portion back to God in thanksgiving to Him. One of the keys of this parable is to realize that everything we have belongs to God. Not just our tithes, but everything. And everything we have is to be used for God. I want you to think of what it would be like to be one of these servants who went and traded with $5 million or $2 million. What kind of person takes $5 million of someone else's money and actually dares to trade with it? That kind of person is courageous. They're bold. 
They're even perhaps a little willing to take risks. When God calls us to faith in Christ, when we wait for the kingdom, we've already studied how in Matthew 24, Jesus pictured the time between his first and second coming as a time when the gospel would be made known to all the nations and then the end would come. As we wait for Christ, we have a calling to use what God has given us to make known the glory of the Lord in all the earth, to proclaim the cross, to show in all we have that we are living for the Lord, to try to raise our kids to fear God's name, to encourage friends in what is good and right and holy, that whatever God has given us and wherever God has placed us, we use it for his glory. There's a third servant in the parable that we need to get to yet. This third servant is not so much a risk-taker. He is not so much a a confident man. He is more of, of a safe man, a very conservative individual. When he receives his money, the Bible tells us that he went and dug it and hid it in the ground. Now, in the time of Jesus, hiding your money in the ground might be like taking it to a local a bank of some kind. It's putting it in a secure spot, maybe putting it in a safety deposit box. It won't gain interest, but it won't be stolen either. This servant realized he had been given something very precious from God, and he didn't want to lose it. He didn't want to be empty-handed when the master returned. When the master returns, it's interesting how he deals with them. This is what happens in Matthew 25, verse 24. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Now I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. You ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. You know, it's a really remarkable thing that the one who played it completely safe, the one who wanted to make sure he wouldn't lose a thing, ended up losing everything. As the parable goes on, the master of the house actually takes away the one talent from this final servant and gives it to the one who had ten, telling us that to each one who has, even more will be given. But to the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and they'll be cast into the outer darkness. Now, this is not saying that we need to be risky with our money. This is not saying that we should take unwise gambles in life. This is saying that part of waiting for Christ, part of being gripped by the Holy Spirit, is realizing that our entire life is to be lived for the Lord. And what we have is for Him. Think of our relationships. Sometimes when young people are dating, they ask the question, how far is too far to go with my girlfriend or boyfriend? That's the wrong question to ask, isn't it? They should be realizing that this relationship is given to them to help the other person grow in Christ, to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. The question is not how far can you go in the wrong direction. The question is how far can you go in the right one. And all of life is to be lived like that. If we try to take a part of our life and hide it away and and not use it for God, beloved, we'll lose it. In fact, Jesus said, everyone who wants to save his life will lose it, but he who's willing to give it up, lose it for my sake, will find it. How are we to be ready for the coming of Christ? To realize that Jesus is the one who has given us everything and to be willing to lose everything for the knowledge of the Lord. Knowing that as we live for God, we may not always get things right all the time. We may not find that every time we share the gospel, we have someone converted. I love those Christian movies where at the end, everyone has somehow become a Christian. That's just not real life. But what is real life is that every effort, every intention... Every time we strive to live our lives for God will be precious in the eyes of our Savior. 
And he will rejoice over the effort we give, and he will bring fruit, even if it's not fruit we can see, to the glory of his name. Maybe it just means we will grow in the faith. Maybe it just means that we'll have someone think about something that was said a year later or a month later, and be led to open a Bible and read again what God was really all about. But the call we have is not to be idle, not to sit on our hands, not to live for ourselves, but to realize as we wait for Christ, we belong to God, and our lives are to be lived for His glory. As you consider the week ahead, how will you live for the glory of God? Where can you invest what God has given you to bring a return that would be well-pleasing to Him? May God raise up an army of workers who are willing to lose it all to gain far more in Jesus Christ. We have one more week of studying the end times on Voice of the Church. Please tune in with us next week to conclude Matthew 25. And we hope that in the meantime you have a great week in learning to grow in service and joy in the Lord.